All right, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, hey, yeah, I missed my cue. I was late for my own sermon. That's not happened before, so... Anyway, that's how it works sometimes. I'm glad you're here. My name is Frank. As I said, I'm one of the pastors, and um, we're just really glad you're here because you could have been any number of places this morning, um, and um, God has arranged for all of us to be here, um, and I think uh, sometimes we take that for granted. You know, we think that we made decisions that got us here. We think that, that we uh, uh, decided to do that. What actually happens is God rearranges your world and every decision you've ever made in your life has brought you to this moment for this time. And God's been orchestrating that. And, you know, I walked into a church once, honestly, just to laugh at Christians who were so weak that they needed a crutch. Um, and an hour later, I'm at the altar crying like a baby, surrendering to a God who's very real. And so I don't know what brings people here, but I know who brings them here. And so God has something for all of us today. We've been in this series and and I've been talking about how inspired I am by the way the early Christians prayed in the book of Acts. Uh, they, they had a desperation. They had a need. They understood the mission was bigger than they were. They, they knew that they couldn't accomplish anything of significance for God unless God was actually directing and driving and empowering them. And so when they prayed, they were desperate. And we talked about how they, they prayed with anticipation. Their eyes were open. They they fully expected when they finished praying that God would do something in response to that. Last week, we talked about praying with your stomachs empty, how fasting connects you to the heart of God. Now, last week, I asked the question towards the end that I think God is asking all of us, do you really want more of me? Do you really want more of me? Because we're going to talk today about the price of the answer to that question. We learned how fasting prepares our heart. Today, we're going to learn about voices lifted. We're going, to, we're going to look at another way they prayed, and we're going to look at one of the most amazing prayers in Scripture that I have ever studied. They lifted their voices in unity, and what they asked for is absolutely, incredibly unbelievable. I mean, when you read it, you're like, oh my, I can't believe they asked for that. We're going to look at that. It leaves me desperate to want to be more like them, to have that kind of faith, to I look at their faith and their prayers, and, and I just desperately want to be like that. I'm challenged by that. I, I have a lot of challenges. You guys know that. Um, one of the things I'm challenged by, and if any of you guys have ever watched, uh, I am horrible at anything 3D. Anybody out there like me? I just cannot picture. You show me a 3D picture, you ask me to put something together, and I just sit there and look at it. And it makes no sense for me. I look at diagrams and they're drawn in 3D and, and those box photos that you saw where they look two ways and, and it always really messes me up. Do you know what 3D designers call their drawings? A frustrum. I think that is the best word ever because I look at those diagrams and it's a frustrum. Seventh grade drafting class. My brother is an architect. Uh, he's four years older than me. So when he went through drafting, he was like incredible. So I get to drafting and not so incredible. I did really well until things started appearing in three dimensions. And then they'd start rotating them and inverting them. And I got so confused that what I thought was up was down. What I thought was down was up. Much like when I get my vertigo stuff. I remember my drafting teacher trying to help me, but I just couldn't see what he wanted to show me. 
No matter how many times, no matter how much time he spent, I just couldn't get the 3D image. When I was in medical school, plastic surgery was completely, totally out of the question. <laughs> if you can't put it back together, don't take it apart, right? <laughs> to this day, I can't assemble anything that comes with 3D instructions. Tammy has tried to help me, but she can't, so instead she usually just puts things together for me. And then I discovered that the guy who designed the whole thing wants me to do something totally different than the thing that I wanted to do. I'll put something together halfway and have to undo it four times until I finally picture how it's rotated. We're going to look at a story in Acts chapter 4. The first Christ followers get to a point where they, re they realize they don't know what's going on. What they thought God wanted, God didn't want. What they thought they were seeing was not what they were seeing. They discovered that God who was sovereign, who designed everything, wanted them to do something completely differently than what they'd been doing. What they had seen, what they thought God wanted was not what God wanted. How do you pray when you have no idea what to pray for? How do you pray when every prayer you prayed seems to be wrong? We're going to look at their amazing prayer in that moment. But first, I need to give you a little more context to understand where they were. Now, the disciples were all Jewish. Makes sense. They were first and foremost Jewish, just like Jesus. They grew up in the synagogue. They learned all the scriptures. They followed all the feasts. They attended the Jewish celebrations. They observed the laws and the feasts. However, the first century Christians added to that background their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. So there were two groups of, belief, of Christians uh, and Jews in the first century. There were Jewish people who had discounted what Jesus had done, and then there were people who considered themselves Jewish, but basically just claimed to know the Messiah. Now, early in this movement, the synagogues had both groups of people because they were all Jewish. The Jewish people, they just went to the synagogue. Some believed Jesus was the Messiah. Some are still looking for the Messiah. At first, they seemed to be able to get along, but over time, the Jewish leaders got a little tired of it, and things started to change. They were constantly telling these new believers to chill on the Jesus stuff. Stop talking about him so much. You're stirring everybody up. Add to this story that they're an occupied nation. They're living under Roman control and authority. The Romans embraced all kinds of religions. They they would let you worship almost anything, anywhere, anytime, as long as it wasn't new. You see, the Romans embraced other religions, but what they didn't allow was anybody to bring a new religion in. They just didn't want to deal with uprising and problems, and new religions tended to bring that in. Early on, and in the story that we study today, the tensions building in the temple between the Jewish people and the new Christ followers continued to escalate because Christians just could not keep quiet about Jesus. They just couldn't stop talking. Eventually, we'll see the first Christians become shunned by the Jewish people, no longer allowed to share in the feasts, no longer able to buy, sell, trade, or work in the Jewish communities. These first century believers could not work, worship, or find food. They were outcasts. In fact, Paul eventually has to go around on his mission trip, collecting money for the Jews in Jerusalem, for the believers in Jerusalem, because they couldn't find work. 
They, they couldn't get a job. They weren't allowed in the synagogue. They, they had no social prominence. Within a few years, the Romans began to notice, with a lot of help from the Jewish people, that this is a new religion. It's a growing movement. It's not Judaism. It's something new. They begin to call it the way. Wasn't the Jewish religion of our occupied land. It, it's a new religion and it had absolutely no status under Roman law. So it has to be stopped and the followers of such religion had to be persecuted both by the Romans and by the Jews. These early Christ followers were seriously struggling. And we've got to know that when we read the book of Acts. Rejected by their families, their culture, their communities, they couldn't operate their businesses in Jerusalem. Shunned by the synagogues and religious leaders. Hunted down by the Pharisees like Saul. They, they drew close together. They began to share everything because they had to. They were trying to survive. They gathered together every day for prayer because they knew only God could solve their problem. They shared their belongings. They began to meet the needs of others. They sold their properties because they couldn't hold property anyway. They shared it with other people. They shared their money. They got together every day to share meals to make sure that everybody got something to eat. They were desperate for God. They needed him to survive, and they knew it. Many of the Jewish people left that persecution and went up into the world to tell other people about Jesus. God always uses persecution to advance the gospel. But we get this idea that the first century Christians were just full of Jesus' love, and they were, but there were serious consequences to the decision they made. They didn't always know who to trust. So they developed the ichthus. You see it on all the cars. The Christian racing club you see out on the streets. Have you seen that? Have you ever seen a car with a Christian symbol on it that isn't going over the speed? I'm just saying. Just paying attention. But in any event, they had to find a way to communicate. They used the fish symbol because it was common in the first century. The fish, unlike the cross, didn't draw attention. It was able to distinguish friends from enemies. If two men met on the street, one would draw half a fish in the ground with a stick. If the other completed the drawing, they knew they were believers. That's where it came from. They drew two sticks. Fortunately, it's a 2D diagram. <laughs> Even I could get that one. They were desperate for the presence and power of God to complete their mission, a mission they knew they probably would not survive. Every day, God's adding to their numbers. Every day, some are taken from their numbers. Many to jail, many to be flogged and beaten, some to be martyred. They were living in a time when their faith in Jesus separated them from the culture and they didn't care. Religiously, economically, socially, politically, and legally, they developed desperation and dependence on God for everything. They were being persecuted, and they needed God, and they knew it. So they prayed constantly. But it seemed like their prayers didn't work. We learn about Stephen. He was full of grace and power. He did great things. Thank you, God. Protect Stephen. They prayed, and Stephen's martyred. They prayed that God would protect them. Let's see how that prayer is working out. Saul was ravaging the church. 
And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. God, protect the church. What's happening? Saul is having free reign. God, where are you? They prayed for protection and he's ravaging the church. They prayed for James, the brother of John. He was one of Jesus's, he's a leader of the Jerusalem church. They needed James. They prayed for James. God helped James. Herod arrests him and kills him with a sword. God, what are you doing? They prayed for Peter, you know, my favorite, walk on water, Peter the rock. He, He was one of their leaders, Herod, who killed John the Baptist, killed Jesus and just killed James, has now put Peter in prison and most likely planned to kill him too. So let's review their prayer journal. We prayed for Stephen, he's dead. We prayed for protection, many in our church family being dragged off to prison. We prayed for James, the leader of our church. He's now dead. We prayed for Peter. He's on death row. I don't know if I'd have kept praying. Let me see if I can bring this home. Suppose our culture and nation turned against us. Imagine such a world. Our faith is now outlawed. Being together puts us at risk. People are searching for us to try to imprison us. Every time we gather together, we learn about each other. Where's Howard and Lori? They're in prison. Bill and Lisa, missing. We think they're in prison. They could be dead. We don't know. Dave and Steve, they're on trial for distributing underground pamphlets and holding Bibles. Tammy, they seized her praying in the cafe. Natalie, she was singing to herself and they heard the words and they had her arrested. Frank, the leader of the church, they killed him last night. Pastor Ed, they put him in prison. That's what they're dealing with. These are are real people. Historical moments, not some fanciful story. When you read the book of Acts, these are a persecuted people who are being threatened every day. None of us could hold jobs without being discovered. Imagine our resources are running out. We're sharing everything because we may not even need it tomorrow. We don't know if we'll be here. We don't know who to trust, so we whisper to new people. We're a bunch of messed up people. And we wait for their response, being changed by the truth of God's word. Oh, you're a friend. We no longer meet in church. We meet in underground small groups. Our building long ago was seized. Suppose if every week some people couldn't get to church, their small group because they were being killed or arrested. It's hard to imagine. And yet, I just described the the church of the first century. And many churches in the world today. Not necessarily the ones in North America. North American churches will stop meeting for almost any reason. So let me ask you a question. If those things were happening to us each week, would you be here? Really? Are you sure? What if the risk was a hundred times that of COVID? Would you be here? Let's say that you knew if you went to church today, there'd be a 10% chance you'd never come home. Would you still be here worshiping God? Because they were. 
You see, we tend to glamorize the first century church. I hear pastors in churches all the time, we need to be more like the first century church. And that's usually when they lead into the tithing sermon about how we're all to contribute freely to everybody. We need to be more like the first century church. I always think, be careful what you ask for. Are you sure you want more of Jesus? Are you really sure? You see, we tend to focus on the miracles and the gift of the Spirit and the spreading of the gospel, but there are two words that characterize God's people throughout history. Remnant, a group of people who are totally sold out to him, those whose hearts are truly his, and persecution. Those two things go together. Let me frame this a bit. There are two billion Christians worldwide. In the U.S., 79%, 247 million people identify themselves as Christian. 80%. Worldwide, each year, 160,000 of our brothers and sisters are martyred for Jesus every year. 160,000. 438 a day. Six of them since I started this sermon. One every four minutes. 26 million Christians martyred in the last century. 200 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ in 60 nations face persecution every day. 60% are children. Literally hundreds of thousands of people today are being killed Brutalized, sold as slaves, imprisoned, tortured, threatened, discriminated against, and arrested solely because they refused to denounce their, their belief and faith in Jesus Christ. If we have any chance of understanding the first century church, we're going to have to get past our Western, comfortable, protected view of what being a Christian really means. A Western view that is no way based in reality or on Scripture. Noted Bible teacher M.R. DeHaan said it this way, to come to Christ costs nothing, to follow Christ costs something, but to serve Christ costs everything. Jesus said it this way, whoever finds his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He continues, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember what I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus says, I'm living. And when the hour, actually, when the next four minutes comes, you be ready. Which begs the question, do you really want more of me? Because there's a price that can be paid. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Jesus actually tries to talk people out of following him. He tells them, you have to know the cost. See, what we do is we just tell people, just say a prayer and you're saved. You got to know the cost. Okay, we're not here because this is some game we're playing. We're here because there's a threatening world, a satanic world that's trying to destroy the message and gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we're here because we agreed to surrender and suffer for him. That's what being a believer means. 
If you think you're here because you just want to be at church and look good on Monday, I'm sorry, you've been fed a lie. I don't want anybody to leave not knowing what the call really is. So with this context, I want to look at our, our text today. Peter and John healed a lame man into the temple. Remember, we talked about that about a couple months ago. The lame man gets up, he runs, and he dances, and he goes all over the temple mount to Solomon's portico. And in there gathers hundreds, well, thousands of people, and, and Peter begins to preach in Solomon's portico. He tells them Jesus healed the man. He tells them to repent and turn to Jesus. The Jewish leaders are upset because they're proclaiming that Jesus was raised from the dead and thousands are coming to agree with them. So they arrest Peter and John. Acts 4, 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today considering a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they recognized they'd been with Jesus. You see, what they're saying is, you guys are like uneducated, but what's coming out of you is wisdom. It's wise. Where did that come from? Well, we're told in the passage they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They recognize God is doing something in you and through you that you can't do. It's not you. We know that. You've been with Jesus. They were ordinary men with an extraordinary God. Somehow the preaching and power of these two men reminded them of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit always does. Whenever the Holy Spirit acts or moves, he always points and reminds everyone of Jesus. Saying, what shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed through them that's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we can't deny it. We see this over and over. A miracle has happened. They should be falling on their faces saying, praise God. And instead they're like, well, what are we gonna do? Because this miracle has happened and we can't deny it, but if they keep doing these miracles, they keep healing people, people are going to believe they're actually God. Huh. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no one else in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Don't teach in the name of Jesus. Keep that Jesus stuff private. You see, the name of Jesus stirs everybody up. You can teach, just leave out Jesus. You can teach about religion, religion's okay. Teach about God, God's okay. Teach about the law, teach about the scriptures, the prophets, tell them about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But when you're at the temple, don't mention Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. 
And when they had no further, they threatened them. They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what happened. What they're saying is, this isn't some story we're telling. This is our new reality. We can't help but talk about Jesus. We're full of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. If you don't like it, talk to the Holy Spirit. I can't control it. I have no ability. It's flowing through me. This isn't a way of thinking or a new religion or some rules to follow. We've witnessed God. God came to us. We know him and we can't shut up about what he's doing. Everyone sees it. No one can deny it. We can't stop talking any more than we could stop breathing. And then they're released. I wonder when they were released what the people began to pray for, the other believers. Here's how my prayer would have gone. Man, we almost lost Peter and John. They're our leaders. Peter and John, they got books in the Bible they still got to write. We can't lose Peter and John. We need them. We can't can't let them get arrested. We just can't. It's too dangerous. That was a huge mistake. We never should have let them be so visible in the temple. We have to keep them out of the temple. We thought they were going to be killed. We can't make that mistake again. Wow, God, that was too close. We got to be more careful. We got to go somewhere more receptive to our message. I think God probably wants us to go somewhere safer. See, my prayers go something like this. Protect me, bless me, guard me. Bless us, guard us, protect us. God, did I mention protecting us? Did you hear me, God? Keep us safe. God, guard us. Surround us with angels. Give us a hedge. Of, well, on second thought, give us a big honking massive wall of protection around us. Because my safety is the most important thing, God. You remember that, right? The mission's about me and my safety comes first, right, God? You wouldn't ask me to go do something dangerous. You wouldn't ask me to go do something that could threaten me. You, you know that we're good on that, right, God? You, you got me. That's not how they prayed. The way they prayed is absolutely stunning. The way they prayed, it looks like a 3D diagram to me. I don't get it. They see so many things that I miss. Let me read to you their prayer. Well, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. I love that. They lifted their voices together. Each one of them an ordinary voice, ordinary people, but when they prayed together, it's like a symphony. Each one praying their part. It was a lifted voice together in prayer. In that moment, God revealed to them something they hadn't seen before. They're about to have a huge aha moment. They're going to realize something that will change their entire perspective. It would be like me looking at a 3D thing and suddenly getting it. It's going to change everything. You see, they're looking at the world as if it's all about them. But their aha moment comes when they realize what's happening here is much bigger than me. This mission is more important than little old me. Something much bigger is going on. God's involving them in something huge. This new perspective changes their prayer. 
not protect me because it's not about me. This mission is not about me. I'm beginning to see what God is doing. I'm beginning to see what he intended. Let's listen and look at this incredible prayer. I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to go back and unpack it. It's Acts 4.24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's unpack that for a minute. They started out sovereign Lord. Their first words are about the greatness of God. You see, a, praising, a praying, praising church worships God for his greatness no matter what our circumstances. God. You see, those first followers are beginning to understand your sovereign Lord. You see, we had the wrong perspective. I thought everything revolved around me. But it's always revolved around you, hasn't it? You've always been in charge. Even when I didn't understand what you were doing, you never lost control. You're, you're sovereign and your Lord. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see, they're starting to connect the dots. They're beginning to see how big God really is and how small they are. You see, you're not just sovereign over it. You created it. You hold it in your hand. Your sovereign Lord, all of creation is at your whim, at your discretion. You created it all. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. What they're saying is, look, we're remembering what we were taught. A thousand years ago, David wrote a psalm. It's a psalm we memorized as children. Now we realize it's happening. It's happening right here. We're living out the prophecy that David spoke of a thousand years ago. Who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. It talks about the coming Messiah. It says there's going to be a day when the kings and the nations, they come against the anointed one. The Gentiles would stand against him. Kings, rulers of the earth, all against the anointed Messiah. It would not work. They're going to plot in vain. And what they're realizing is we're witnessing this now. We're living in prophecy. 
Sovereign Lord spoke this a thousand years ago. And when he spoke it, he was thinking of us. It's happening right now. And it's exactly what happened. Everybody's turning against Jesus and those who follow him. We're seeing it. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, what they're realizing is, wait a minute, we saw this. Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and kings, they, they persecuted, they, they killed the anointed Messiah. We saw it, and here's what we're realizing. You weren't out of control. This is what you predestined. It's what you determined is necessary. It's whatever your hand has predestined to do. What we're realizing is what's happening around us is happening because of you, not because of us. It really happened in this city, Jerusalem. We saw it happen, Herod, Pilate. That psalm has been quoted by Jews for generation after generation. We wondered how it would happen, and now we know we're seeing it in the news. We've been eyewitnesses to major league prophecy. We thought you lost control, God, but you're in control the whole time. We're having our aha moment. It's starting to click for us. You had a plan. These things didn't just happen. You orchestrated them. They could only do what you predestined to have happen. We didn't understand you, God. It didn't make sense to us. We thought it couldn't make sense, but now we're beginning to understand. That means we've been praying for the wrong things. We prayed that they would crucify Jesus, or not crucify Jesus, but they did. We prayed our people wouldn't be arrested, but they were. We prayed that James would be released, but he was martyred. We prayed that Peter would not be arrested, but he was. We doubted you. You've been here the whole time. You planned all this. None of this caught you by surprise. You see, Herod and Pilate thought they were in control. And Jesus told them, you can't do anything unless my father wills it. You thought you were calling all the shots. You're sovereign God. So now they had to be thinking, look, all along we've been looking at this wrong. We've been seeing a distorted view of what's happening. How do we pray now? What do you ask for when you realize that what you've been asking for was not God's plan? When you've been praying for is against God's will. Protect me. Guard me. Don't let them arrest him, crucify him. Don't let them get him arrested. But that was all against your will. You wanted those things to happen. You're sovereign. You allowed it. We don't know what to pray for anymore. You see, our prayers go like this. Thank you for today. Now give me, help me, provide for me. Their prayers focused on sovereign Lord who's in control. God, you're amazing. God, you're so big. God, nothing surprises you. They still haven't requested anything, by the way, in this prayer. They can't stop worshiping him. 
Because they're realizing who he really is. They're having their 3D aha moment. We realize who you are. You're sovereign Lord. You've been in control the whole time. We were clueless. They realize their lives are at risk. They could arrest all of us tonight. They know they're in danger, but, but what, what, if, what if our arrest is God's will? What if our persecution is his plan? What if our sacrifice is what he actually needs to move the mission forward? What if our lives are actually expendable to move the mission forward? What if God is to be glorified through our suffering? Just like Jesus was. Let's see what they prayed for. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Please consider their threats. They don't pray, do away with our enemies. They don't pray, don't let us get arrested. Don't let us be persecuted. Above all, God, just make it comfortable for me. Protect me, guard me. No, they didn't pray that. That's what I pray for. Here's how they prayed. God, about those people that want to kill us, would you at least consider their threats? We don't know. Maybe it's your will that they kill us. We just want to make sure you know what's going on. You see, as long as I know you know I'm okay, will you just make sure you consider their threats, God? You see, we're aware of them, and we just want to make sure you are too. Would you just, whatever happens to us, would you just help us remember that it had to go through you first? Would you just consider our threats? And then they ask for it. It's so incredible, but contrary to what we ask for. But once you realize God is sovereign, once you realize he's working out his plan, that what's happening has been foretold forever, that you have a role in what God's plan is, that you're part of the mission, you're not the mission, that whatever happens is more important than you then when you realize that, there's only one thing left to pray for. They know their situation. They're scared. Their lives are in jeopardy. It may not be God's will to protect them, to deliver them. God may not desire to remove their enemies. So they ask, God, if you, if you don't do anything else, please do this one thing. So powerful. Pray nobody misses this. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Boom. That's a prayer. God, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what you have planned tonight. I, I don't know. But here's what I know. If I'm going down, would you give me the power to speak boldly in your name? Would you use me to be a bold light to other people? Do whatever you need to do to me. Just make sure, God, when the moment comes that you fill me with boldness. You ever prayed that? Our prayers, help, bless, protect. If you don't help me, if you don't protect, if you don't heal, at least do this. Enable me to speak your word with boldness. If the cancer doesn't go away, 
if the life situation doesn't change, if what I think I need isn't what you know I need, then at least, God, in the midst of whatever happens to me, let me speak with boldness. Don't let me waste my life. If, if I'm martyred for you, let me glorify you in the process. This prayer blows my mind. It's incredible. It represents a heart that is absolutely, completely, and totally surrendered. The people are being persecuted. Tomorrow is not promised. People are searching for them, throwing them in prison. Leaders are being killed. People are being martyred for their faith. And their prayer is this, God, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what tomorrow holds. The forecast is not good. But God, please, when that moment comes, if you give me nothing else as long as I live, if you don't protect me, if you don't rescue me, if you don't destroy them, if you don't heal me, let me, give me the power to speak, not my words, but your words with boldness no matter what happens after that. Because in my 3D reveal, my aha moment, I realize this mission is more important than me. No matter what happens to me, the gospel message has to go forward. I've already died for this mission. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Holy Spirit, I need your power. So when the moment arises, I beg you, allow me to speak your word with boldness. You'll never be able to pray that prayer until you embrace that the mission, that God's plan is much more important than you. I believe right now this prayer is critical for our church. I think our future looks much more like the first century church than we want to admit. Our society's changing. Many of us are realize that our nation is not a Christian nation. No way 80% of people are doing what Jesus did. We're beginning to realize that we're not in the majority. Surveys say 79% claim to be Christians, but if you use the gun to the head test, I bet it's less than 4%. The prevailing force in our society is not a biblically-based Christian one. The message of our society is the same one Peter and John heard. Talk about God, talk about religion, talk about coexisting, talk about Buddha, Muhammad, talk about Oprah, any one of her crazy gurus. Just talk about somebody, but don't talk about Jesus. Don't speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. Because see, that stirs people up. Why? Because there's power in that name. You speak that name, you're intolerant. Which apparently is the worst thing that could happen to anybody. You see, Satan wants to silence the voice of Christ followers. I think we're only a decade away, maybe not even that long, for it to be illegal to preach God's truth about homosexuality, preach God's truth about abortion, to preach God's truth about same-sex marriages, to preach God's truth about sex outside of marriage. I believe they will not be protected as free speech, but rather persecuted as hate crimes. Just a matter of time. We're not far. I believe churches in the future will be pressured to become more Unitarian. Accept everyone, every faith, every belief. Don't be so intolerant. And sadly, I think there are Christian churches that are actually going to do that. 
One day, God may ask us to sacrifice remnant for his mission. I'd rather see this building destroyed. I'd rather see all of us go underground. I'd rather see us go to prison or get martyred than to see us ever once compromise the word of God. Amen. Even once. It seems studying the word, God uses a persecuted remnant to move the gospel forward. A remnant of true believers, full of the Holy Spirit, surrendered to the mission, praying people, desperate for the presence and power of God, who speak boldly without fear for Jesus, surrendering to God no matter what happens, living their lives as living sacrifices, surrendering their lives, if necessary, as martyrs. Then it seems God allows that remnant to be persecuted, sacrificing, serving, surrendered, laying down their lives for others. There's no greater love than that. That's why Jesus did it. And those who follow him may be asked to do the same. You see, persecution clarifies your situation. It makes the most important thing important. It helps you clarify where you stand with living for Christ's glory or your own. It makes you decide if the mission is more important than you. Those of us in the West have the luxury of debating if real persecution will ever happen here. But for our brothers and sisters around the world, the debate's over, they're living in it. There are 12 fewer of them than when I started this sermon. Five were children, statistically. We're gonna spend a few minutes praying. Do you know what happened when they prayed for boldness? And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The place they were praying was shaken. They prayed an earthquake prayer. I'm not suggesting that you pray for an earthquake, but some people here need to be shaken up. Just saying. We need to be shaken up so we can wake up. Some need to pray, God, if you're going to shake up something, start with my foundation because I got to know it's real. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is again. And once they were filled with the Spirit, God gave them the power to speak the word of God with boldness. Please, God, replicate that miracle in this room right now today. Maybe you realize that you need Jesus. Maybe you've been sitting here and you're thinking you're the most important thing, but something inside of you is telling you that you need to run to sovereign God. That Jesus is waiting for you to run to him. Yes, you'll have to confess your sins, yes. You'll feel his disappointment. You'll want to hide everything. It's part of the deal. But you need to surrender to him. You need to turn from being the God of your life and allow him to be the God that he already is. The first step of your new faith starts at the altar, on your knees, surrendered. Don't wait, come. When the music says, just come. Just come to the altar. Let God do what he's going to do. Perhaps you need to confess that you've never really been surrendered to God's plan for your life. That, that when you sit here, if you're really honest with yourself, you've been about you. It's okay, we're all selfish. That ends at the altar. It's going to cost you something to follow Christ. But now God is telling you it's time to be all in. It's time to serve. 
And it may cost you everything and God's begging you to be all in with him. Maybe God's prompting you to pray for the now 15 that have been martyred since I started. That their sacrifice was not in vain, that they were able to speak with boldness and that while, those, while they were praying, those who were watching were seeing the glory of Jesus and maybe they too will surrender. Pray for the people who martyred them. Maybe you need to confess that your view of following Christ was comfortable and sterile and guarded and protected and you realize you really haven't been following God's plan at all. You just ask him to stamp yours. But the mission you've really been on is your mission, not his. Some here are completely surrendered and with voice lifted to pray, Sovereign Lord, grant to your servants at Remnant to continue to speak your word in boldness. Because this mission is far greater than any of us. We're going to have a few minutes at the altar. I want to encourage you to get real with God. We're on a mission. We've been given an incredible gift, but that gift requires sacrifice. And the first sacrifice is ourselves. Let's pray. God, I thank you that the early disciples prayed with such boldness. They knew. They, they were desperate for you. They knew that you had all the power. They knew you were sovereign Lord. Whatever they prayed for, it just had to fit in your will, but they didn't know what that was because everything they prayed for seemed wrong. But the one prayer that's never, ever wrong, never against your will, is to pray and speak your gospel with boldness. So God, help us to go there today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.